Hello, everyone, and welcome to No Planet B, a podcast where we're talking about climate change and its effects on Planet A. I'm Wyatt, and I'm Brianna, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm Olu. Nice to nice to be here. So nice to have you. Sorry, we. I realize I'm realizing now. We just made you introduce yourself. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Maybe not. A, maybe not. Maybe not the greatest way to do that. But we're really happy to have you. Uh, thank you. Finally, so much. have you on the show. Yeah, it's it's really great to be here. I really love what you guys have been doing so far. Thank you. We'd love to say the same about you. Um, we've been listening to some of your episodes lately, and uh, I'm it's glad just to hear that. A really great show. So Olu hosts a show called The Energy Talk. And we met online and basically have been talking about recording an episode for a little while. Oh, Luke, do you want to give us a little bit of a background on what you do and how you got started podcasting and all that? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So uh, I just got out of school. I graduated a degree in petroleum engineering. I I just got back home and I was applying for jobs. Uh, The oil and gas industry is a bit of a mess sometimes. So it usually takes a while to go through applications. So in the meantime, while I was doing that, I was also working as as a copywriter for an advertising agency. And I felt myself pushing away from my my initial background in petroleum engineering. I wanted to do something that kind of like put me back in a place where I was talking about topics about energy more constantly and learning about things as well. So at that time, I was listening to a lot of energy podcasts. So I felt like, okay, um, the best way to learn about these things is to talk to people who are doing stuff in the field. And before then, nobody replied to my LinkedIn messages to just chat about stuff. So I was like, okay, at least if I have a podcast, I have an excuse to talk to people. So it started (laughs) as a personal project to just learn about uh, the energy industry just outside of the uh, oil and gas. I got a, a, a lot of yeses once I said invited people to the podcast and it's it turns out it turned out great. I've learned quite a lot more than I thought I would have. I wanted to focus on just energy, but I eventually just found myself talking about things like uh policy and climate activism and climate change in general, which is uh unusual for petroleum engineers to say the least. I like the idea of using a podcast as an excuse just to talk to people. Yeah, me too. That's cool. <laughs> no one's replying to me. And then you send them an email and say, well, it's for a podcast. So how about that? And they say, sure. Yeah. All right. You, you, you got me. You would be surprised what, what people would say yes to you if you can ask the questions in a proper way. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know what? That makes me think we should start podcasts for other things and just to talk to famous yeah. people. And say it's for a podcast and see you know, how that that's works. That's actually a really clever idea because it, it it probably it probably will <laughs> will gain some traction. It'll work in some ways. <laughs> yeah. So we we're trying to pick a topic that fit the three of us. And Olu mentioned something, and he was really careful not to say it in a certain way. And I remember this specifically, but the idea that we kind of wanted to discuss was privilege of caring about climate change it's kind of strange to think about but the idea that to care about climate change generally comes from a place where all your other basic needs are met and you have maybe more wiggle room to care about the environment and this comes from a a long-standing of social surveys and i guess just ideologies so there's one in particular that I read about after we discussed what topic we wanted to start on. And I think it was a social survey in 1995 by a sociologist named Ronald Englehart. It included 43 countries asking about people's opinions on environmental policies. And he found that 
countries where the majority of people cared about environmental policies uh, had two things in common. One was environmental challenges that they were facing, so usually like air pollution, water pollution. And the other one was that they were affluent. And his justification or his reasoning behind that, I guess, is that when people are wealthy enough to not have to fret about more basic things like food and shelter and as much income, they, they're they more apt to prioritize environmental concerns. So that's kind of where we're starting. Obviously, that comes and goes, and that idea has been challenged quite a bit since then. But we figured we'd, we'd discuss it and see what we can uh, come up with. So Olu, why is it that climate change conversations look so different in some countries than in others? I'm actually curious if there were any uh, African countries kind of like folded. I, I, I really doubt it. But uh, why, is, why is climate change different? Why is the conversation different? I think it's just uh, first a matter of priorities. I wouldn't say that it's, it's, it's fair to say that the only people who care about climate change are the people who are affluent and they've reached a certain, mm-hmm. like, they're just so comfortable that they have no problems in their lives and the only thing they can bother about is, like, an, a faraway problem like climate change. I, I, I don't think that's, that's, that's a fair assessment to just put it like itself. But one of the reasons why, uh, and I'm using my own experiences, so I'm, I'm Nigerian, I'm from Nigeria. I lived there for quite a while and then my family moved to a country called Qatar in the Middle East. So in a country like Nigeria and many other sub-Saharan African countries, there are a lot of problems to worry about. So there's a large rate of poverty and some civil wars pop up every now and then. So people have a bunch of more immediate problems to deal with, like uh, food and shelter. I think those take the, the major priority. So talking about something like the environment and like conserving the environment is not something that people are really like bothered about so much. But that, that goes into like what their financial situation is and what the economy is like and what the governments are like. But I think if you look at like other countries that have kind of like dealt with this, uh, you look at when uh, Britain had the first industrial revolution and they used a lot of coal uh, and they had a lot of like dirty air and smog. And then they realized, OK, maybe this is not such a good idea. Let's let's switch over. So it's a uh, it's a very complicated conversation to get into. And. That is why I was so cautious when I wanted to say, okay, it's a privilege because mm-hmm. that that in itself sounds very polarizing to begin with. So I, I'm sure we will have time to dive into all the peculiarities once we go into, into the conversation more. Yeah. So are affluent countries more likely to care about climate change or is it just different circumstances? If you just want to blanket answer like, like a yes or no question, mm-hmm. I think the answer is yes. Because if you look at the countries who have been more progressive about their climate policies specifically, uh, it's it's pretty obvious that you don't see many African countries taking like bold steps towards a Green New Deal, for instance. That's something that's probably not, not going to happen anytime soon. But I think it's also about how uh, the cost behind implementing some certain environmental policies and climate change policies, it starts to get expensive sometimes. And sometimes it's just really a, like the reality of what the financial situation is rather than if people have the will to kind of go about these things. Uh, I had a guest on the podcast sometime talking about how islands deal with sustainability. Something very interesting, islands usually pay a lot of money for their energy and they have to deal with like their waste mm-hmm. and storage problems like a lot more creatively because they don't really have a lot of land mass and everything kind of like has like an immediate effect on the community that they're in. So uh, they island communities usually care a lot about uh, sustainability and climate change because 
it's it's going to affect them a lot. So they have a further incentive to put policies in place to protect themselves, like banning single-use plastics, for instance. So they're not necessarily like really wealthy communities or wealthy countries, but they have a further incentive. But when you look at a country like like Nigeria, for instance, like I go back to Nigeria because that's where I'm from. It's 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 something that it's not really high on the priority list. I, I can give a, a good example of this. So. Mm. We have these things called petroleum subsidies and mm-hmm. the, the country is borrowing money to keep the, the subsidies in place. And obviously that is not sustainable, but that is what people want because many people can't afford these things. And because the country has such poor energy supply and many people have to deal with like 12 to 16 hours without electricity in their homes. So many people have electric generators to kind of like generate their electricity throughout the day. So petrol and diesel and other fossil fuel projects are very important to how the ecosystem runs how the businesses run how people live their lives so uh yeah so this just has further to the complexities but i think it's pretty obvious that uh wealthier countries tend to be more ambitious in their climate policies at least the island countries that's like a really interesting one one of the more recent studies of like surveys of people who care about the environment found that it's definitely not just affluent countries and one of the biggest contrary points to that was that like island nations were regardless of affluence very like very concerned about what was going on with environmental concerns and climate change yeah that seems to be the overlap where regardless of affluence certain countries will have to care about it because they're being so heavily influenced by what the climate is doing that seems to be where that line kind of like converges a little bit if that makes sense yeah that that is and you've already touched on this a little bit but in developing nations or in places where they don't necessarily prioritize environmental concerns, what's prioritized over climate change, would you say? Okay, so now this is where I, I, I get really excited about because mm-hmm. although I think uh, climate activism and climate advocacy is really important, I don't think it really fits into what the needs are mm-hmm. for uh, many developing countries. I think the, the biggest focus is access to energy and probably clean cooking and then climate change probably takes like a very close third because uh, large portions of the population do not have like proper access to energy and electricity. So either they're burning fossil fuels or they're using diesel generators or petrol generators, which are a lot more expensive to maintain and obviously produce a lot more emissions. So I think really tackling that uh, that standpoint, for me at least and for many people I speak to, that, that is a really high concern. And this kind of like plays into the climate change narrative as well, because I, I, I started a podcast and I, I wasn't really thinking of having anything related to climate change on the podcast. But mm. when when you talk about something like energy access and then renewable energy comes in because it's one of the cheapest ways to kind of deploy projects in these communities because they don't obviously have a lot of spending power. So it's, it's, it's about like cutting down animation, but it's really about the fact that there's a large population of people that do not have access to to energy. I think the the, the number is about 800 million people now. Mm. And let's say, uh, I think IAA made a forecast uh, last year that said that by 2030, the number is going to go down to about 600 million. But nine out of 10 of those people are going to come from sub-Saharan Africa. So that, that obviously is a huge concern. And this obviously hits very close to home because even in Nigeria, which is considered one of the largest economies in, in Africa, we have like a lot of energy access issues. Only about 55% of the population actually has access to energy. And I have air quotes up right now. It's about like uh, okay. six to 12 hours a day. So it, it, it's hmm. that, that really is the main concern. And if you go into a community and you talk about climate change, they, 
Yeah. Either they won't care or they won't understand. But if you go in and say, okay, we want to give you energy, we want to give you electricity, okay. then it's something they can immediately understand because there's an immediate need. And then you can go in and explain to them about uh, conservation <laughs> of the environment and how emissions are bad for them and all these other things. So consider it an entry, a, a proper entry into having a conversation and really starting the dialogue with some of the communities that, uh, that, that uh. suffer from energy poverty. Because... If you if you took um, let me just call it a Western approach and you organize a protest mm-hmm. and you go to the the cities and you have a large group of people, no one would care. You most probably get arrested because protesting uh, around around the parts where mm-hmm. I'm from is is not really something that is encouraged. It's very political and like it's 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 you, mm-hmm. it usually means that you you you're discontent to the sitting government at the time. So yeah. That is one thing that I think actually has more of an importance right now is to really tackle that energy poverty issue. And that kind of like allows everything else to come into it. So starting the dialogue on climate change with them, you think could start with let's provide them energy first. Yeah. And, and do you know uh, something very interesting because I have spoken to uh, climate activists from from uh, Nigeria and one from Uganda. So one of them, the one from Nigeria, is, mm-hmm. and her name is Yetine Fadei, and the one from Uganda, her name is Vanessa Nakate. She was in the news lately for uh, the incident at Davos. That's kind of a long story. Although they they are pretty vocal about uh, their concerns about uh, how climate change is affecting uh, African communities and stuff like that, but the way they preach their mm-hmm. message, especially in the African communities, is is through energy access projects. Um, one of the communities, one of the organizations, Reese Africa by one of the guests I had, they actually go into communities in Nigeria that have never had access to energy before in, in their entire like history. So they go in there, they give them small solar home systems and stuff like that. And that is how they, they start to educate them about uh, how uh, climate change is a real thing, how it's going to affect them. Mm. And then they're more likely to listen to you because they can actually see what you're doing there. And many people have come up with very creative approaches to this. I know another guy from Somalia. He he has a company in Somalia where they they, they actually trade solar home systems for goats. And it's a very, very creative, you know, <laughs> um, solution to a problem mm. because uh, most of these projects, where they struggle is having access to people to finance them. So uh, so in, in Somalia, they had a lot of livestock. They actually have more livestock than more livestock than people so he just realized okay maybe we could just trade the goats and just give it to them and fi- trying to find uh some economic value for the goats he has so technically he's a goat yeah. now that just happens to trade them for oh, some wow. systems so so this is kind <laughs> of like the reality on ground in an african setting because yeah you can't just talk about climate change you need to talk to them in a way that they can understand and then put that in because uh, we're not at the stage yet where you can, where people can understand or care about climate change just yet, but we're getting there. How quickly do you think we're getting there? I know that's a vague question, but <sighs> how quickly do you think we're getting there? Uh, so <laughs> uh, recently on the podcast, we had a guest who is a, a investment analyst for uh, one of the mm. cities in, in Africa and Lagos. And um, she basically said that if, if anyone is looking at like uh, African countries going completely renewables by, let's say, 2050, that then, then they're kidding themselves. Uh, <laughs> honestly, unless something miraculous happens, it's, it's going to be slow. 
And I think that we need to be aware of the fact that it's going to be slow change, but that doesn't mean people aren't working very, very hard. Like I've spoken to a lot of people that work specifically in sub-Saharan African countries that are working very, very hard towards solutions. But the reality is that it's going to it's going to take time. And you have some international policy agendas like the Sustainable Development Goals that have this 2030 um, deadline to give the whole world access to energy. Although it's a wonderful initiative, yeah. sometimes it doesn't really reflect uh, the realities that are in these places because uh, it's a lot. Mm. And honestly, I don't think it's anytime soon, but that doesn't mean that things will not get better during that time. People are working hard towards solutions, yeah. but it's probably going to take longer than other parts of the world. We mentioned people going to these countries. Um, you mentioned trading like goats for energy systems. Um, there's like educating. There are all these different ways that we can begin these dialogues and begin these actions. What is the most concrete way that people in developed countries or people in maybe we could say the Western world that they could have a positive influence on these places that first of all, need energy, you know, like what, what can these developed nations do concretely to help the issue? (sighs) Okay. That's a, that's a really loaded question. (laughs) That's a really loaded question. Uh, Okay. So, this is this is where financing comes into play, and there there's some people who are like yeah. not very uh, fans of uh, foreign aid coming to the country because it kind of mm. like disincentivizes people to come up with unique solutions. Let me just use the the goat example. So the name of the company that, that does that is it's, it's called Power Off Grid. The model of trading <laughs> livestock for solar home systems is not something that is recognized. And let me just put it this way: sometimes creativity. Hit, is, is not very often mm. rewarded in situations like this, which which is quite unfortunate. So mm. in my opinion, um, I've spoken to two kinds of people, basically people who run NGOs and people who run companies, and they're both trying to do the same things. They're both trying to go into communities and to, to set up energy access programs or to eradicate energy poverty, to educate communities and stuff like that. It's basically, it, it really comes down to how money comes in and does money go to the right project? So this this is really complicated because it also goes into sometimes um, you have um, corrupt politicians who take the money and doesn't necessarily go to the right place. Mm. That's a very African thing. It's something that uh, I think most parts of the continent really struggles with when it comes to politics. So basically it's that. Uh, Money is something that can kind of like accelerate things for good and for bad. So uh, financing is a big thing. Interesting. Uh, access access to financing is, is is a really big part of it. And there are other arguments that go into this because you, you have to realize if, if you have a community of, let's say, uh, 500 people and they live in a semi-rural area, they're, they're probably not contributing so much to the GDP if you get what I mean. So uh, mm-hmm. there, there's there's little financial incentive to put money in when you know that you're not going to get like a, a decent interest out of that investment. So this is kind of where uh, the complexity comes into it. So financing is a very big issue that I can see, but uh, still people are working very hard at it. There, there are lots of organizations you can actually donate to. People are doing very good work. So yeah, so this is, this is one major hurdle that many organizations are dealing with right now. Mm. The money. The money, yeah. It all comes down to that at the end of the day. 
In your mm. interview with Vanessa um, Nakati, is, uh, where you were talking about African voices in the climate movement, she mentioned something about people not really being educated. Do you think that developed nations could help in that aspect by trying to educate developing nations more? Saying that kind of like makes the assumptions that if people are educated, then they're more likely to to believe yeah. or to like take action on climate change, and which which we know mm. is is not necessarily the case in in, <laughs> in, in in some parts of the world. So yes, yeah, literacy rates do play a huge part, but for uh, probably a different reason from what you're thinking, because um, sometimes when when people don't know enough, they can they can kind of be like taken advantage of during elections and people just mm. vote for things they don't know about and people stay in power based on like the ignorance of the people. So, so yes, but it, it doesn't necessarily have a direct impact to let's say what the climate change policies are going to be, but just, just as a matter of people holding people in power, I, I, accountable then the literacy rates do play a very huge role in it and also something else we have to realize is mm. that in, in in most other parts of the world uh climate change has become very very political you have like some political parties kind of like forming the identity of what their uh climate stance is in most african countries it's it's not really like that our, our political party system people kind of like flip-flop between them sometimes so uh there's there's not much of a policy uh difference between them so uh yeah mm -hmm. when it comes to the literacy rate it's really about people holding the people in power accountable because if you know you're being taken advantage of then you have a very good incentive to not be taken advantage of but then if you just don't know yeah. you're just ob oblivious to things so education does does play a huge role uh, has to where foreign aid of like uh, developed countries can come into it uh <laughs> i don't think i have the answer to that question because um yeah have, that's a tough a part of, uh, yeah you, you have a lot of organizations already set up like uh um you have uh, sustainable energy for all that 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 have lots of workshops in rural communities they, they they are really big on empowering women and helping women learn about stuff like that and mm -hmm. uh and there's a reason for that because in African setting, like if you have a if you have a community that doesn't have access to energy, you, usually it's the women or the girls that are spending time like fetching firewood for the cooking, spending time doing like domestic chores. So basically, they, they don't have the time to do anything else. So they basically just chop to do all mm. the domestic work and the men go do something else. So it's 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 something that lots of organizations are really coming in, especially f from that angle of empowering women and like making them learn more about how to do things more efficiently. So yeah, like mm. there are lots of organizations already doing that, and Power for All is another one that does lots of like really good work in Africa, especially. So so yeah, um, there are lots of organizations already doing stuff like that, but they they do it in very different ways, and they they all focus on sometimes they all focus on the same things, and sometimes they all focus on like really niche things. But yeah, like some people are doing like really good work, but it's it's not like the silver bullet, if you will, to kind of like solve things. Yeah. But but that will make us have like more educated debates about the topic. Like mm -hmm. we would have policy recommendations come out of it. That might not necessarily lead to uh, solutions, but at, at least people will be talking about it, which I think is, that's the first step. That's, that's the first step. Like, okay, True. now people are talking about it. So we're just like a few steps closer to actually like start implementing changes that we need. So how do we get people talking about it? I'm going to be taking some of the experiences from one of the guests you brought up. So Vanessa Nakate. Mm -hmm. um, so she 
she has been doing this uh, climate activism for a very long time. And one of the biggest, the biggest parts of the work she do, one of the most important, at least from my perspective, is when she goes out to international conferences and she talks about these things I'm talking about. Because most times when you have uh, big international conferences, whether it's intentional or just because of the way the world is, there is not proper representation of certain communities or certain voices or certain experiences. So when the policies come out or when the plans come out, it kind of doesn't benefit people who it should be benefiting because they don't have people who are advocating for them in on on those big stages. So that's that's something that I personally really, really admire her for doing. And also it's just about like really investing yourself in your local community about what you're doing. Mm. Um, there was this uh, guest I had, one of the first guests I had for my podcast. So this is this is in South America. This is in Peru. So they started this company called Equoswell and when they started in, so they're, they're working with this small community called Lubitos. So they, they were just drop in every few weeks. But when they realized that if they really want to have a change in the community, that they have to physically be there and have a presence there. So they had to move there or quit their jobs and come there. And they're doing really fantastic work there now. So it's two sides to it, really. It's how you present yourself to the international body and how, how well you're integrating yourself and really making your work become part of the community you're trying to uplift, basically. And this, and this goes back to the energy, energy poverty or energy access project. You can't just go to a community and just like put up a few solar panels and just wave to them bye bye and then you, and then you're out. Eventually, it's going to go bad. Eventually, it's going to stop working. Someone might break it. It might get dusty, and then all of a sudden, they don't, they don't get interest mm. anymore. You actually need to have some presence there. You need to be educating them. You need to go back for maintenance and empower them to be able to do it by themselves because that is the end goal. You want them to be able to maintain those things. You want them to be able to talk about those things. You want them to be able to stand up to their um, their, their community chairman or their uh, local representative or their governor and, and ask for things that would actually benefit them. So this is where education kind of has a really big, really big um, foothold because they need to know what they're talking about for them to have a proper like uh, voice at the table. But yeah, getting there is, is what many people are working hard towards. And there's progress there. There's, there's, there, there's definitely progress on this. I guess there's a parallel there between community involvement and the goat trading. I can't stop thinking about the goat person. <laughs> Another dynamic to this when it comes to like being part of the community you're trying to solve it is sometimes, let's say uh, you go to the first community and you just install a few solar panels, you have a few water pumps and it's good. And then you... And then you think that, oh, since, since it works here, let's just go to another place and do the exact same thing because it's efficient that way. You you, you kind of like copy and paste and you just stick it in your box and you're gone. But it it, yeah. it doesn't actually like work in reality because many of these, of these communities are very, very different and the people kind of want different things and they might react differently to what you're trying to do. So... Uh, the Go thing is a perfect example, and this really goes into how you can access information and how you can use it. Because if you have an international organization just just coming in there, they wouldn't see the potential of of this Go trade for uh for for their product because they will just come in and see, oh, these people don't have money, they don't have stuff to trade with. Uh, how do we do this? This is a problem. But because it was somebody who knew about uh the realities on ground and knew that this is something that could potentially work and there's a market here, there's a, <laughs> there's mm. a gold market, <laughs> then they would be able to come up with, uh, with this solution. And it's, 
it's yeah it's something that it, it, it kind of gets reflected in many other parts of the world just having the time to do that research and and to be honest it's it's really hard it's really hard to find information especially when you're dealing with sub-saharan african countries where the governments don't really like keep too much records and you have to go in yourself and get this information there's actually this project by the World Resources Institute, um, headed by um, Dimitri Mentis. Uh, I, I spoke to him for the podcast as well. They're doing this um, Energy Access Explorer, where they just have information about rural communities. And in, in, right now, they're in the beta phase, so they have three countries. They have Tanzania, Kenya, and, and Uganda. So they basically provide people who want to do projects like this. They give them information. They give them that how many people have mobile phones, how many people have like uh, cash payment options, how many people can, can do mobile banking, how many people have roofs that you can put solar panels on, where are the hospitals, where are the schools, because this is, this is very, very important information. And if you just think about it, if, if every, every group has to go there and do this themselves, it's going to get very mm. expensive. It's going to get very, very, sometimes impractical. So it's, it's just... There's a huge temptation to just do the same things everywhere and just move on because in reality, that is why like some of the projects don't work. And it kind of like leaves a bad taste in the community mm. when they say like they say that solar panels is not real ele- electricity and, and they just say that they, that they actually don't want it in some cases. So to avoid things like that happening, there's a strong case for uh, organizations that do these kind of projects to collaborate with themselves, to share information and Basically, yeah. So that access to information is is really is really what's what's going to make um, creative solutions come out. Because if if you don't know enough about the the local communities, the chances of you bringing a solution that actually gets adopted and they take ownership of is is very very low. You most likely have to keep coming back, keep spending money, and it's 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 not going to be a fun time. Basically. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be trying a bunch of different solutions that don't quite fit that community and that might not stick. Exactly. So then it could be more about building up communities. Yeah, yeah. And that's I guess that's really tough for someone who isn't from that community to just go in, I guess, to learn about it and then to try to build it up. Yeah, because... One one of the things that we have to realize as well. Um, so there was one time I spoke to um, someone who did a lot of projects in India as well. Um, it's really about giving these people the access to create their own opportunities. I think once you think about it from that angle, then then you are you're kind of on the right track. You're not supposed to go in there and tell them what what they're supposed to do. Basically, every, yeah. every everybody kind of like wants to do good for themselves. Like they may have different ways of going about it. Sometimes some people's ways probably is not the best way, but everybody wants to do well. So most of these communities, like, and it, 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 it doesn't really matter where they are, whether they're in South America, whether they're in Africa, whether they're in South Asia, there is a severe lack of opportunities as compared to developed countries. So... Access to energy really levels the ground, at least to some aspect in terms of how much opportunities are open to them. So then they can worry about things like, okay, they can they can study for their for their school and do their homework at night because now they have electricity, so they don't have to use a candlelight or something like that, which is which is actually harmful for them. They can they can scale up their businesses and get some 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 machines that kind of make that can make them more productive, so they make more money. 
basically these things kind of add up. So once you think about it that way that, okay, what we're doing here, we're empowering them to take, to be able to create more opportunities for themselves. That is the only way this project can be sustainable and this project can last because once you uplift them to the position where they can have more options, they can have more things they can actually do, then they can begin to worry about, okay, uh, probably, Perhaps it's time to start worrying about the environment and cleaning things up. And and then they can realize that, oh, um, all the mudslides that have been happening probably has to do with climate change. And if we cut down trees, it's probably not very good for us. And we had a drought this year. We didn't have it last year. The rainfall pattern is becoming very unpredictable because you have to remember that climate change is real in those communities. Just because they're not aware of it or because they don't care about it doesn't mean that the effects just go away. Uh, there, there, there have been huge effects that have been coming out like due to the changing climate and it's 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 really ridiculous that these things don't get tied to um climate change by the local media or whatever but it's it it's it's just the way it is so these things will affect mm. them more and, be, and because they don't have the financial means or opportunities or access to facilities and infrastructure they don't have the capacity to deal with the consequences and the worst part is that although they they're contributing the least in terms of like co2 emissions they're probably going to get affected the most. And this goes to many, mm. many, many countries, many communities that are on the, on the, in, in undeveloped countries or underdeveloped countries or developing countries. This is the reality that they're dealing with. They have less opportunities and the impacts of something that they had very little to contribute to is going to hit them the hardest. So this is, this is really the reality on ground, basically. Yeah. I think that might be the most important thing that you could tell people in developed countries as far as getting a grasp on understanding all of this, that some folks are not able to do what it takes to mitigate, but they are going to be affected the most. Exactly. Yeah. That's, I think that's a good start at least for people that are able to help. And also maybe, maybe a bit of sympathy. Like the fact is, like regardless of how you look at it it's probably going to take developing communities much longer to um to do some things as compared to like countries that are fully developed and can like invest lots in like infrastructural changes and go into hmm. um they can afford to pay more money for generating money uh electricity with wind and solar only but some countries cannot do that. Um, India stands out as an exception because India have been doing very fantastic work when it comes to energy. They have had other political problems, but when it comes to energy, they went from about um, 60% to about like 90%, 99%. And obviously the the, the, the Indian government might be um, sweetening those numbers a bit to kind of like look better to the international community, but that's another conversation. But, no. but it's possible. <laughs> Basically, we're we're in a position where we have the we we have the technology to to kind of uh, meet those energy access problems. The only the only thing that we're lacking, if we're going to use renewables, is probably uh, battery storage technology. Hopefully, it will come, mm -hmm. but uh, we're not there yet. Nuclear obviously isn't isn't a very big um, solution because it's 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 too expensive for most African countries. And then you look at stuff like mm. basically you you just don't want people to go back to burning coal and and you have china coming in and like funding um coal plants in in most sub-saharan african countries so that's that's not a good look but the reality is that if if these communities do not have other options 
And if somebody comes in and tells that, okay, we, we can provide you with cheap electricity to power your schools, power your hospitals, they would not care where that energy comes from. They might deal with like the, the bad air quality that comes with having a coal plant in your country much later, but initially they will welcome the idea. And the fact is that mm. you can't look at them in a certain way because they're doing those things. You have to understand why they're doing those things. They're, it doesn't make them horrible people that don't care about the the, the planet mm. and, and uh, try to like reverse all the progress they made on climate change. It's just that that is the opportunities in front of them. And if you want them to choose other options, you have to give them more opportunities to do that because that's what it really comes down to at the end of the day. You said India went from 60% to 90% of what? Of of energy access. So basically the amount of people in the country that access to energy. Gotcha. I think it's, it's more about like 70%. It's, it's, it's a rough estimate, but yeah, like it's, 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 it's really wonderful how, how they were able to do that in just like 10, 15 years. So if they can do it, basically, mm. I'm trying to say like it's it's possible, it's definitely possible see, to do. But yeah. Uh, yeah, let's just hope that it actually happens that way. Yeah, so I, I can just I can just share a uh, uh, kind of like uh, an outtake of the conversation I had with Vanessa Nakate, which uh, I'm I'm very very inspired by her because I know how difficult it is to do the things she's doing from an African yeah. uh, community, especially from. From, from Uganda and the amount of sacrifice it's taken out of her and just with dealing with all the things that she's dealing with. So uh, her, her, uh, our, her um, what's it called? Her activism, basically she can't go out with a large group of people because the police probably come and shut them down. And also she, she kind of like said that because maybe maybe they see her as a female so they feel like, okay, like she's, she's not a huge threat. So... Uh, they really don't mind it for that reason, but the, but the fact is that uh, at a certain point, we might see a much larger movement because once once people kind of like wake up to the issues at end, and they kind of like see the harmful effect, and they mm. realize that politicians and some companies don't really care about um, the effects they're having, then then we will see a much larger response, but not yet. But uh, hopefully it doesn't come to that. Hopefully it doesn't come to that because things things tend to escalate a lot more, <laughs> a lot more uh, <laughs> in African countries. So uh, I hope it doesn't get to that, and I hope it's 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 something that can be fixed way before uh, we have to resort to like a large scale protest or something like that, because that would be very unfortunate. Yeah, Alu, in your personal opinion. Do you think it's a privilege to be able to work on climate change issues? I might sound like I'm contradicting everything I've said so far, but uh, <laughs> but yes. really, but yes, I do. I do think it's uh, it's a privilege to be able to do that. Uh, I don't know how many of the other people I've spoken to feel about this issue because I'm sure everybody have their answer to this. But personally, um. My family moved away from Nigeria in 2010. We moved to Qatar, which is a very rich um, natural gas um, country. So they have a company based on the petroleum industry as well. And basically, this this kind of gave me like a lot more opportunities, access to the internet, uh, steady access to energy. I'm, I'm not saying the people in Nigeria don't have all those things, but it's 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 more expensive. So kind of like maintain that lifestyle. So the only people that really can maintain that are people who are like already kind of like well off, like upper middle class or like really, really affluent. 
So just looking at the things I've done, um, starting the podcast, um, speaking to all the guests I've spoken to, all the opportunities that have come my way where I went to school, and basically everything that's come, the, the things I know have come from a place of privilege. And even when I spoke to Vanessa mm. as well, she she also said it. So she she just finished up her, her master's in uh, business administration, I think, when she started getting into climate activism, when she actually learned about the problem. What she said to me was, if her, who was so educated, wasn't really aware of the impact of climate change in her community, how much so the people who aren't educated, to people who didn't go to school, to people who don't have a degree, people who don't have a master's degree, the people who don't have opportunities, the people who have to struggle about what they're going to eat the next day, people who are, don't have all these amenities that it's so easy to take for granted. So, yes, mm. I do think that it does come from a position of privilege. And basically what I hope and what many people are working towards is that it doesn't have to come from a place of privilege. Everybody should care about this. But the reality is everybody can't care about this right now. So that should be the yardstick to how much progress we're making. When you can make people who aren't well off, aren't privileged, when they start to care about these things in African communities, then we know that, okay, we're onto something here. Now we're actually making a positive mm. change. But for me personally, yes, I do think that my, my involvement in this does come with a place of privilege. Well, Alu, thank you so much for being on. I was on. We really appreciate having you and for you to take the time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a great conversation. It, it kind of got a bit heavy, so I'm sorry about that. I was trying. I was trying <laughs> Don't worry. I'll just edit all the heavy stuff out. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Dare I say, it was a privilege to have you. <laughs> Dare I say. Did we make that joke already? <laughs> I actually, uh, I don't remember. You, thank you. It was, it was really nice to be here. Uh, I like your energy. It's 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 not every time I get to have guests I can laugh with. Sometimes it's all like down to business. It's like, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm.